Hello, everybody. I'm Nick Atkin. I'm Chief Exec here at Yorkshire Housing, and you're listening to Raising the Roof podcast. It's the show that brings together business leaders as well as industry experts, and we unpick the hot topics in both housing and, and beyond. Today, well, when we talk about hot topics, we're talking about the reputation of the sector. It's been a blisteringly hot topic, uh, worse than the weather uh, in August in terms of temperature, um, and it's covered a variety of, of news and media outlets. Um, but I think one of the other things that it's highlighted as well is particularly in, on some of the comment threads, the, some of the stigma that, that still exists in some quarters on, on social housing issues. So joining me today are three guests who bring their own unique knowledge and perspective. Um, firstly, I've got Martin Hilditch. He is an award-winning journalist. Um, he's got more awards than the Manchester United Trophy Cabinet, not in the last five years, of course. And he's been editor of Inside Housing since March 2019. Those of you who know Martin know that he campaigns extensively and usually successfully on issues such as homelessness and safety in social housing and indeed inside housing's ongoing Endar cladding scandal campaign has been hugely effective in shaping government policy. On a personal level Martin's for me is one of the most balanced and nicest journalists uh, I've ever come across. I've got to say that in case he writes anything nasty about me after this podcast but he's equally not afraid to say what needs to be said. Also on the panel, we have Alistair McIntosh. He's one of the housing sector's biggest and well-known personalities. He's the founder and chief exec of HQN, and he's also regarded as one of the foremost thought leaders on a range of topics, including governance and regulation. He's a regular contributor to the, the housing press, and I think it's fair to say that Alistair's columns are known for their humour, very pointed, and sometimes I have to say painfully accurate assessment of the current issues. And he even has his own TV channel. It's on YouTube and it's called First Things First. Always worth a watch. And then last but by no means least is my Yorkshire housing colleague, Susan Godbold. In her current role as our customer insight and engagement manager, she and her team have worked incredibly hard to ensure that the, the customer voice is embedded at the heart of the organisation, and in particular, our governance and decision-making structures. In her spare time, uh, Susan's also a dancer, so she'll be making a few nifty moves around any tricky questions that get asked today as well. So that's it. That's our guests. Let's get into the issues with a nice, easy warm-up question on the Select Committee um, report on regulating social housing. So let's kick things off. What, what do you think, really, panel, the, the, the report tells us? And and what do you think, how do you think the sector should respond to particularly the six key recommendations? And because of what we're trying to cover today, let's let's focus on two of those recommendations on, on stock condition and, and tenant representations. Martin, should we come to you first? What, what's, what's your sort of take on all of that? I'll start off by saying I, th I think uh, the, the, the report is pretty much spot on in its analysis, but also really sets some hairs running in terms of where the sector could and should be going because a number of these are issues that, that have been bubbling away in the background for, for some time and are really coming to the surface. I mean, I think in terms of that, that kind of um, monitoring of stock, huge, huge question in terms of, I, I guess, the work the sector's been doing, why some of the problems that have emerged have emerged 
given uh, you know the the, the work that the sector already does around kind of stock condition checks and monitoring and data I mean we could have been having this conversation 10 years ago in terms of you know some some of the steps the sector was taking I mean I think let's kind of start with a, a couple of things I mean for, for me there are I would like to see perhaps when it comes to stock condition and um, some of the monitoring so I guess how the sector should respond I quite like to see the sector bring tenants in to that response. I mean, one of the models that I go on about quite a lot in inside housing is the Northern Housing Consortium's tenant jury, um, which I think has really been a massive success over the last year, really, really been interesting, actually in terms of tackling stigma, which we'll, we'll come to um, later on, but also in terms of looking at an issue, examining it, coming up with solutions, and then also a kind of monitoring process to, to look at progress. So I think actually in terms of stock condition, one way the sector could respond collectively opposed to individual landlords would be to look at, at that model and to look at yeah bringing tenants together in some some kind of jury model to look at what the solutions should be because the, the select committee really kind of throws down the challenge says it's not good enough and uh, that the sector needs to do much better when it comes to, to understanding the condition of its own stock I think as well as some interesting models emerging, you can see that there are some, I think Notting Hill Genesis, Asta, Green Square Accord have all said that they're looking at understanding the condition more widely of their stock, so, so surveying more of their stock. And so that's certainly an immediate response the sector could do. And also seen some models where individual landlords have been writing to all of their tenants and to uncover any particular issues that might emerge. I should say there's a caveat there because the, the select committee does say that actually one, one area that the landlords have been over-reliant in terms of tenant engagement perhaps is on stock condition and that that's a real problem that actually it's waiting for tenants to tell them if there are problems rather than actually being proactive and understanding uh, the conditions on their own estates. So, so it does come with a caveat. Thanks, Martin. And, and absolutely sort of echo what you've said about the Northern Housing Consortium's tenant jury model. Yorkshire Housing had one of our customers who was a representative on there and um, we've taken a huge amount from that approach and hugely successful and very powerful as well. So thanks, Martin. So come to you next, Alistair. Yes, thanks, uh, Nick. And th thanks, Martin. That was a, a fair summary. And I agree that it is a, it's a good report, but select committee reports don't usually go anywhere. So it'll be interesting to see what the ultimate reaction is. I felt the missed opportunity in the report was it didn't address the financial situation sufficiently. It said right at the start, you know, a lot of the landlords, you know, the attitude could improve, we all agree with that, but at the heart of it, they lack the cash to do the works to the properties, particularly the regeneration estates. And one of the estates that they paid a lot of attention to is costing the Housing Association £1 billion to turn around. I think if you look at regeneration, if you look at decent homes too, if you look at decarbonisation, we're almost at a stock transfer moment. We need different types of business plans, different financial monitoring from the regulator in order to meet those demands. It's as colossal an investment requirement as it was at the end of the Thatcher era. What fascinated me was that whilst every housing association in the land that gets to its in-depth assessment must prove to the regulator that it has an up-to-date validated stock condition study, we nonetheless find there's a 13% gap between English house condition survey figures on the lack of decency and the regulator for social housing figures drawn from associations that shows there's 99% decency. So something's clearly wrong with the data. 
And as Gore was reputed to say, if the figure is really 99%, how come Quasio and ITV are identifying so many cases? So a lot to do on stock condition, but it will be an exercise in essay writing unless it's accompanied with cold, hard cash. What do you think the, the reasons are for that gap then, Alistair? I mean, there are some methodological differences between the two studies, but that, that could explain a few percentage points. I, I genuinely don't know. But as I walk around, I struggle to believe that the figure could possibly be 99% compliance with anyone's reasonable interpretation of these polls. Thanks, Alistair. Building on this and building on the, the Select Committee, and particularly bearing in mind the point, Alistair, you raised about the fact that all too often select committee recommendations don't have enough bite. What about regulation? What about legislation that does have have bite? So the social housing regulation bill. Does that go far enough? Would that meet the requirements uh, that have been set out by the select committee? And also, will it address some of the issues that we know are circulating around at the moment? So, Alistair, I'll come back to you on first on that one. Well, you, you, you'll have seen uh, Lord Best's. Um, amendment to the Social Housing Regulation Bill calling for a lot more precision on what is actually meant by inspection. Baroness Heyman has also submitted a similar amendment looking for a lot more precision on what is meant by professionalisation. So at the moment, we know inspection is coming, but we don't actually know how it will be run. And I think the regulator has got quite a job to do to build up its capacity. And I think the parliamentary draftsmen have got a big job to do in order to avoid the sort of fiasco we've seen on exempt accommodation. We've got this regulator looking at this, another regulator looking at something else. So we do need a better, more integrated system to regulate social housing. And of course, the thing that is really fascinating to me is, say you get a housing association and it's in trouble, what do you do next? The traditional weapon of choice for the regulator has to has been to merge. Well, we've already got numerous of the largest, most financially strong housing associations on the government's naming and shaming list. So that the policy isn't available anytime soon. We'll also be looking at local authorities. Um, and the weapon of choice again for the regulator has been to install people on boards. Well, you know, good luck with that in, in local authorities. So there's I'm all for inspection. Uh, I think Nick, when you ran inspection in the North, you did a great job, but I think we need a lot more detail, a lot more hard thinking about how it will actually be constituted at the moment. I'm sure Yorkshire Housing will be amongst the first to uh, pilot any new regime. <laughs> I'm already dusting off the key lines of inquiry from a previous life. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, just on that, I mean, just on just before I come to Martin, just having been a veteran of the previous inspection regime, Alistair. Where's the balance? Where do you think that it needs to be a similar level of prescription or, you know, do you go the other way and give some loose guidance in terms of where people should be? But then that obviously means that those perhaps who don't want to do it will use that as reason to sort of duck beneath the requirements. So where would you pitch it? If you were if you were housing minister, where would you be pitching though, that inspection regime? I would be trying to, I mean, Fiona McGregor talks about working with a coalition of the willing, and I would be seeking to work with housing associations and councils that want to do a good job, like the ones that turn up at Northern Consortium events and HQA events. Yeah? I mean, we're preaching to the converted. They want to do a good job. Let's try and help them. Interestingly, I have been rereading the Chloe's recently, 
And they've passed into mythology as some kind of dreadful uh, prescription-type um, biblical diktats. But in actual fact, they were very output-based. And the one on estate management could have been written yesterday. But what is interesting about the Chloe's is to get top marks, you had to go beyond the statutory minimum. And one of the cultural differences in the period since 2010 is just enough has become good enough. Whereas in the period before that, it was about going over and above, over and above the requirements and having your good practice replicated by others. So there's some big, big changes, I, I think, on the way. Yeah, really, really interesting sort of uh, reflections there. And I know many people who, who talk about the former Chloe's have probably not not revisited them or indeed ever read them. So I think that's a really interesting reflection. Um, so Martin, coming to you, given sort of your, your in-depth knowledge of you know where things are heading to and particularly the, the social housing regulation bill, is there anything else you'd like to see in that that, that would address some of the issues that you and Inside Housing colleagues are are reporting on at the moment? I mean, I think actually, to, to give it credit, it does it does take significant steps forward. And I think that, that actually the point that Alistair was just making about the precision, some, so some of the, the, the that broad best amendment, for example, I think is a really important one to go and have a look at. So, so I think actually, yeah, absolutely, the kind of precision and what it will actually mean in practice um, is, is, is really important there. And I think for me, though, it's it's, it's kind of almost the same point Alistair was making uh, in, in a response to that first question. There's that question of resource. And I think that is really key to this. So yes, you can have something that on paper takes things forward, uh, uh, certainly a, a significant degree, I think. I mean, uh, let's be fair, I, th I think it really does move things to a different level. But what level of resource are we going to see attached to that? Um, um, it, Alice was just mentioning the regulator kind of upskilling and, uh, you know, getting ready for the, the, those changes. But actually, that needs, uh, I think, a greater degree of scrutiny um, at, at this point. We need to be really focusing on how much resource the regulator is actually going to have to carry out these functions because frankly however great they look on paper um if the regulator isn't resourced to do it properly it's going to fall, fall over and fail and i think that that really is for, for me the, the the key so i do think it represents a step for you know a significant step forward if those resources are attached but that that, that for me is a key point of scrutiny now i was going to talk about resources later but whilst we're on the topic let's sort of pick up that thorny issue as well so we're in sort of unprecedented levels of, of inflation inflation levels we've not seen for 40 plus years we know that the um the rent formula is is directly attached to uh, inflation in at september and and as such you know you could probably expect reasonably expect that some form of rent cap uh, may be coming down the line if that does happen, what do you think will be the the impact on those quality issues and that gap in particular that that Alistair mentioned before? But also, you know, the further pressure on on finances at, at a point when we know you know the government coffers are pretty much empty um, in terms of trying to respond to the cost of living crisis more generally. So, Martin, first coming back to you first, a view on what impact a rent cap would have. Well, I, I, I think we know the impact the rent cap had last time round, um, but equally, I, th I think the circumstances were quite different last time round. We we're coming out of a, or still in a situation really where the sector was kind of fighting 
for, for its life, for its existence. Its reputation with government, the relationship with government had been shaky and was still kind of in, in, in that kind of period. And I also think the direction from government was very, very clear at that stage, um, which was build, build, build. So that very, very much it was, you know, if you're not doing that, what are you, what are you there for? Um, so that there was some quite big um, question. I think we're in a, a different set of circumstances now. Um, and I think it, it does come down to choice as well. So, so clearly that there will have to be choices made and it doesn't, it's not going to make life easier in terms of delivery equally I think you know within all of that and, and this this is where that kind of engagement with tenants that we we're talking about earlier comes in you know who's being consulted and what choices are being made and what what's kind of acceptable how closely you work with tenants and residents in terms of how you're making and coming to some of those conclusions um so, so I think that's that's important but also I think this time around the decisions that will be made will be quite different to last time however and we've got a new government coming in and we need to have quite an open and honest conversation about what those choices will be and what impact that will have on things like development programs because you've you know i think again from last time round that you've got the fire safety pressures zero carbon and um, very very much um, up the agenda compared to where it was um four or five years ago so there are, there are all these different pressures um coming to bear but absolutely quality and safety have to be um, the top of the tree as far as it goes to me that, that if you're sacrificing those um, I think you're making the wrong calls but the politics is is important and those discussions need to be had and they need to be had publicly as well as privately. That's a cracking summary of some of the issues and, and some of the balancing act the very fine balancing act that a number of organisations now face. Um, Alistair you've got a view about what impact a, a rent cap would have on some of those quality issues? Uh, we, we, we know exactly what's going to happen with, with the rent cap, don't we? Uh, I mean, let's say it comes in. Uh, and, and already, I mean, Citibank are saying inflation could be 18% next year. So we're only potentially at the foothills of this problem. We know that Housing Association and Council business plans rely for their viability on inflation-linked rent increases. Already, the vast majority of them couldn't cope with net zero. This is additional pressure, and it will result automatically in a vast increase in mergers. We've seen the number of housing associations with more than a 1,000 homes, the global accounts, go from uh, 400 in 2012 down to 200 or so today, and that merger trend will continue. You, it cannot fail to escape the attention of the larger associations some of the merged ones, some of the ones that took over difficult housing associations are on the name and shame and problematic lists. So I think I think we know exactly what it will do for quality. There's no easy answer to that, but I do think if we had a strong, well-funded national tenant voice to ask some proper questions in a style that the RMT is asking the transport moment, we might actually get somewhere. We might have more sober discussions. But of course, who's going to fund such an organisation? That has to be the challenge. Thanks, Alistair. Susan, I'm going to come across to you because these issues are quite complex. And I, and I suppose from a customer's point of view, it, it's just it, it's quite a simple choice in many cases. I say simple, but it's it's pretty dreadful choice in, in the fifth richest country in the world that some of our customers are making now the choice between heat and eat. If mm-hmm. you then are talking about adding you know, rent increase pressures to that. You know, 
how do we how do we best have that conversation with our customers so that you know they're at least aware of some of the the pressures and and some of the things that we won't be able to do in in the event of a rent cap being imposed it's just about being completely honest and transparent from the outset isn't it just having those those open conversations not holding anything back not holding back information that we perhaps don't want them to see it's letting them have access to everything and like I say just just from the outset saying look this is the situation and these are the things that we might not be able to do but that's where Martin touched on as well is where you bring customers in because actually they can help prioritize some of those services about you know have a look at what's important to them and I think we have to realize as well and having worked with our customer voice and review committee these sort of last 18 months is you know they, they do understand these issues and not sort of blind to it we're yeah. not calling them something that that they don't already know that they, they understand the pressures so and they understand our perspective and they understand our point of view and they will just come in and they will sort of help and support those decisions but like i say it's just about being it's just about laying your cards on the table let me turn now to the stigma issue and and the whole point that alistair raised before about the fact that when he goes out what he sees is is not marrying up with some of the figures around how good or otherwise we say our homes are so i'm really interested to to really get under the skin of why you you think it's taken a, a sustained investigation by itv news alongside um you know a, a really young and driven social housing campaigner in in the form of quajo to, to shake things up how have things got this bad and where does all that leave the the sector's social purpose you know Martin, I'm going to come to you first on this because obviously you've you've been very balanced in your reporting of, of some of the issues that, that have been identified. But what's your take on on how we've got here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a number of different factors that, that feed in, in, into this. So, so it's it's, it's a, a quite a difficult question to kind of answer uh, very quickly, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. Um, I think for, for for starters, it's the the sector perhaps not trusting or not listening to its own tenants voices so I, th I think that is i mean there's some really interesting models i mean you were talking about your own um, south yorkshire housing optivo uh, to name a couple looking at kind of co-design co-production working much more closely to deliver services and look at how services are actually operating in practice and i will keep coming back to to that point because i think that that has been absolutely key in terms of how we get here because the voices of tenants within organizations have been marginalized and haven't been treated seriously enough i mean i think i think you know report after report what we learn from grenfell what you learn from quajo and the the daniel Hewitt investigations is the, the voices are there but they're, they're not being heard they're not being listened to and, and if they are they're being heard in a kind of individual capacity rather than looking at kind of collecting collective collective problems or indeed you know what, what those desired solutions might be i, I do think there's also the kind of political elements to this so that ongoing focus on social housing as being something that is to be escaped from uh, i mean remember that one of the uh, i think seven key recommendations from that the charter for social housing residents was to be supported to take your first steps to home ownership that, that you know that, that that's one of the key recommendations from that report and and really just kind of that that ongoing attitude about social housing being something that that really is if that doesn't stigmatize social housing i don't know what does 
But within that, I think we need an articulation about what social housing is actually there for, because that, that's that's a <laughs> who's articulating that? Where, where, where's that kind of a voice coming from? It, not just within the sector, but from from government. What's what's our kind of housing system there for? And what are the outcomes we 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 we're looking to to achieve with it? And thus, what is the purpose of social housing? And I think if we can define that um, uh, positively, more clearly, you you start to to kind of tackle some of those some some of those issues. Um, so I think there's neglect in a number of different areas, but also a lack of clarity, which enables us to, to move towards that, that, that position that you, you get outlined in the charter and, and more widely. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Martin. So, Susan, I'm going to come across to you next. Just, you know, you've got a view on this. What, what are our customers saying? What are you seeing? You know, what's your reflections? I think in terms of things, like you say, things get, getting this bad and getting to the point where there are like you say, documentaries on ITV and sort of um, these bad news stories in the press. Looking at it from speaking to customers who, who are raising complaints and perhaps in that situation, quite often you hear the same things time and time again. It's where it's at the point where people don't know what else to do. They don't know where else to go. They just genuinely feel like they're not being listened. And I think that's where we've got to as as a sector that that's the point that we're at is that we've just just got so used to not being listened and landlords not taking action particularly like the poorer performing landlords not taking action that there's nowhere else to go with this and it and it sometimes takes this kind of like you say this voice campaigner or a, a news documentary to actually just bring it to the forefront and just get people to actually sort of stand up and and take note and like I say that the amount of times I've spoken to to customers and they've, they've said exactly the same thing I didn't know what else to do I didn't want yeah. to have to do this didn't want to have to raise it this far didn't want to raise a complaint I just genuinely didn't know what to do and I just feel like that's where we're at that's the point we're at now really really good reflection Susan thank you Alistair, I'm sure you've got a view on this. I've heard you speak about it a few times, so I'm bracing myself for what you're about to say. I think the other, I mean, you know, I mean, Susan said some very good things from the from the front line, and, and a lot of it is down to recruitment and quality issues, isn't it? I mean, everyone's struggling with what bulk rubbish has gone up, what 100% anti-social behaviours, booming right, left and centre, north, north, south, east, west, folk are struggling to recruit. So, you know, we are in for some sort of a bumpy ride. And, and, you know, this has got nothing to do with Boris Johnson or uh, or anything like that. You see exactly the same programmes in Scotland about abysmal standards there. And you get the leader of Edinburgh Council somehow magically didn't spot problems on one of his biggest estates. How on earth did that happen? You know, a well-motivated individual who just has the blinkers on in relation to council housing. Now, Quasio and Dan, Dan Hewitt and ITV, are only saying what frontline staff, call centre folk and operatives have been saying for years. And there's sometimes a Quasio at a conference and he comes up at the end and he says, how come people aren't hostile to you? And I said, because they want you to be successful. You're not just the voice of the Thames, you're the voice of the frontline, you're the voice of Susan and her colleagues. And we're just not getting through. Why are we not getting through is because the regulatory system was all about governance and viability. Boardrooms have got fantasy housing management going on. The, the work from the front line never gets up to the top, does it? And there's a great... Martin and Pete Apps have been following the Grenfell inquiry. And it's a fascinating exchange between Richard Miller QC, who's doing the interrogation, and one of the actually very good Kensington and Chelsea council officers. 
you know, who's just distraught about the whole thing. But Miller asks her, have you training on safety? Have you training on this? Have you training on that? No training whatsoever. Oh, but I did get governance training. Yeah. So I think there's been a real problem and the focus of the industry has been designed around the consultants and the regulator and not around real life. We absolutely need to clear out the stable in terms of some of the people that are advising housing associations because they've sent us down a very, very dangerous, isolated route. Thanks everybody for that. I think it's some really, really informative and insightful sort of reflections on on where things are at, but also where we how we can move some of those forward. I just very quickly just want to touch on something that Martin said about being clear what social housing's purpose is. And I suppose it links to a point you you made, Martin, around a probably class it as stigma with social housing. And and I suppose that's been around for as long as I've been in, in housing, which has been a few years. Um, and, and I suppose, is there anything we can do that would shake that stigma off? All too often, social housing is seen as a, as a step on the, on the path to something better. But for many, many, many of our customers, and I'm sure Susan or, or, you know, have come across a number of, uh, for example, our own customers in Yorkshire Housing, you know, they love living in social housing. They love the security that it gives. They love the value for money that it provides. But also, they, you know, that it's, it's in communities where they want to to continue to live and work and bring up their families so you know how do we how do we shake that stigma off you know any thoughts on that Alistair come to you first yeah of course Nick if you if you were as old as me uh, you would remember when council housing absolutely dominated and certainly in the bit of South Glasgow where I'm from I mean everyone was pretty much in the same boat almost regardless of income so that this is something we've got ourselves into, and this is something we can get ourselves out of. You'll recall that David Cameron's housing advisor, Alex Morton, in 2010 wanted house price stability because that would promote home ownership. And if he'd succeeded, you know, that, that would have worked well. But he didn't succeed. Home ownership is now unattainable across most of the country. The private rented sector is turning people into Labour voters, according to that Centre for Policy Studies report. So, in effect, Conservatives are now more or less abolishing the private rented sector. What does that leave us with social housing? Personally, I would build a lot more of it. The more you build, the less the stigma, because people are in it. And, you know, most folk I know would bite your hand off to get a social tenancy at the moment. So, I I think we could be on on a wee bit of a turn here. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Alistair. Martin, you've led a number of hugely successful campaigns that have changed mindsets in, in the housing sector. Do you fancy taking this one on? And if so, um, you know, how, how will you break that stigma? I, I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of the points that Alice just made were, were, were really uh, important. I mean, I think actually, in terms of the campaigning, Quajo and Dan, I think, have uh, I know there's some debate within the sector about you know is is exposing those conditions stigmatizing in itself I totally reject I, I think if anything's done it, it, something positive right now to tackle stigma it has been particularly Quajo whose campaigning really shows social housing tenants positive light what, what they could and should expect I think the same goes for the ITB news investigations again ordinary people you know working in a range of different industries who just want and expect 
what everybody should want and expect. So, so I, sorry, I, I think just in terms of campaigning work, I think actually the sector embracing some of those campaigns and uh, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely agree. There's, there's plenty of people who do, you know, particularly on the front line, accept some of that. But I do, I do think actually not pushing back against those campaigns and listening and, and actually reflecting on the types of voices that, that you're hearing on the news for the, the first time from like, like we're talking about tenant voice and this is it yeah. <laughs> that's it it's there yeah. um and and actually what a positive contribution that is making i think in terms of driving up standards but also challenging some of those stereotypes about social housing tenants that you, you've been seeing so i think actually if there's anything for us to reflect on and for the sector to reflect on it's that it's how how you kind of capture those voices and talk about the importance that social housing plays in people's lives probably the other thing I would, I would throw out there is just in terms of stability which i think was a word that that alistair used uh, steering clear of some of those debates about security of tenure that we came across like 10 11 years ago social housing has one unique selling point it's that it provides stability for people who need it and that that to me just seemed absolutely ridiculous 10 years ago when the sector seemed to be trying to remove the one <laughs> unique thing it provides which is that stability for people to build their lives and um you know develop their uh, you know develop roots and um their careers so yeah I, I think that's that's something not to revisit anyway okay that's good some great reflections in there thanks thanks martin so susan i'll come to you if you were the uh if you were the country's next prime minister how would you uh address uh, stigma i think we're already you know quite a good job um, I'm just thinking um, specifically, there's a there's the group of tenants I'm sure we've all heard about who run a very successful campaign called Stop the Stigma. They used to be called See the Person until recently. And they're just such a passionate group of customers that have come together and they're really kind of getting out there in the sector and, and driving home that message. And it's really seeing that sort of rippling effect now. So it's already started and it's just about landlords working really, really well with the customers and tenants to tackle the issue together and to make sure that landlords are part of the solution. So yeah, I think it's already starting, but it's, it's up to us, isn't it, as landlords to make sure that we, we're developing the right culture, that way we're getting to a point where we're, we're perhaps challenging inappropriate language, challenging inappropriate behaviours, some of those ingrained behaviours that we sometimes see aren't necessarily on purpose, but it's where people's maybe their unconscious bias is sort of coming in. But like I say, it, it, it feels like it's already started and we're just, we're on the right path. But there's definitely scope to to change it and remove yeah. the stigma. But we have to play a really important part in that. Absolutely. And I think really interesting that you use the term unconscious bias. I was at a session a couple of months ago that really sort of resonated with me on, on equality and diversity, where a person who was leading that session said, unconscious bias is only unconscious to the point at which you realise it's there and then it's bias. And I really thought it was a really interesting sort of reflection on how we need to perhaps look at some of the, the the issues that we've got circulating around at the moment. So, Susan, you've already done answered my quickfire question, which was to give some examples of some of the things that are positive in the sector. I want to finish on, on positive things. So you've given a really positive example of where there are initiatives and organisations tackling reputation and, and also some of the stigma issues. Alistair, I'm going to come to you next and then Martin to give him the final word. But just any examples, any Cause for optimism, Alistair, that you've seen that you want to share? Absolutely. Every cause for optimism, because when you talk to the young people on the call centres, when you talk to the operatives going around, they are fine. They want to deliver a good job. 
you know, we just need to uncork the bottle and let their views percolate to the top. And as you'd expect as a consultant, I've had to investigate a few cases after you know, disasters and all the rest of it. And in every single case, the front line knew about the situation. It never got through to the boardroom or the chief executive. So we've definitely got good people. We need to take the genie out of the bottle, whatever analogy you want. I think the other thing, if I may, just touching on Martin's point, the real issue, I think, with Quasio is he is a social housing resident and he's running rings round the social housing bosses and ministers. Reflect on that. Great, great one. Martin, I'm going to come to you for the final word on this one. Just um, give, give us some cause for hope and, and, a, and a bright future ahead. What have you seen that's worked really well or what do you see as the positives looking forward? Well, I, th- I think, like I say, I, I see Quajo and and you as as a real positive actually, and they have driven change. And in actual fact, there has been uh, you know significant steps forward over the last few years. So I, th- I think that gives me um, cause for, for for hope for for starters, even though there's further to go. I think for me, the, the things like the tenant jury and some of those co-production models, I th- they also I, I think the key thing with them is to promote them, to look at them, to really scrutinise how they've worked. Because I think I think that there's the opportunity for those models to grow, but only if people are aware of how they operate, that it's not going to destroy your organisation. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why people are resistant to those models, to be honest, but I, I think the more we can demonstrate that they're, they're working and they, they actually um, lead to, to, to really positive outcomes in terms of service delivery, that, that's where I'll be looking. That's why I'm optimistic, I think. Okay, that's great. And thanks for that. So time's against us. It's, it's, it's now time to, to close the door on this episode of Raising the Roof podcast. A massive thank you to, to all three of our, our guests. A, a massive topic that we've, we've really had to canter through and you've given some great examples and some real cause for optimism. And an equal thank you to you, the listeners, for choosing to tune into this episode. Please remember that all of our previous episodes from season two and also from those early days in season one are available via your usual podcast providers. But that's it for now. Thanks very much. <laughs>